The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. In 2021, the state of Georgia passed an election reform law in response to allegation of voting irregularities in the 2020 elections. Whether there was truly significant fraud and whether the new law is an improvement on the old law is a topic for others to debate. In response to the passage of this law by a state, Major League Baseball moved the 2021 All-Star Game, which had been scheduled to be held in Atlanta, to Colorado. And the CEO of Coca-Cola, James Quincy stated, this legislation is unacceptable. It's a step backwards and it does not promote principles we have stood for in Georgia. This is just one example of a trend of corporations acting to promote certain social and environmental goals. Is this what corporations should be doing? Who should be deciding what corporations do? Should government authorities like the Securities and Exchange Commission push corporations to do more to advance environmental and social goals? These questions have been analyzed and debated by professors of economics, business, and law for decades. Joining me on the show today is uh, Mr. Mike DeVoe. He was the Stephen Everett Wells Professor of Municipal Law at the Cumberland School of Law at Samford University. Professor DeVoe has bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from the University of Alabama, and he earned his law degree from Yale Law School. Before teaching at Samford, Professor DeVoe clerked for then federal judge Ken Starr and was an advisor to the Federal Trade Commission. He's also served as an assistant to the uh, Alabama Attorney General. Welcome to Troy, and welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Dan, thanks for having me. So, we wanna start here by just mentioning you know, that, that uh, corporations have taken a number of stands on, on social issues, and that really sort of in uh, stark contrast to, uh, in, in the past when corporations have been have been known to take more of a, a lower profile to stay out of controversial issues. And, you know, I guess the, the reason for that is sort of simple. They, you know, they, they're in the business of selling Coca-Cola or other products, and, and normally they don't want to uh, offend their, their uh, potential customers. But we've seen a change here, haven't we? Yes. It's, it's, uh, I do not know of a, of a similar episode in corporate history. Um, corporations have been involved in political uh, controversies, particularly, I'm thinking back to the um, companies like Honeywell in the late 60s and early 70s that had trouble recruiting on college campuses because they were involved in uh, different defense contracts mm -hmm. and supporting the Vietnam War and all of that. So, so historically, it's always been the corporations have been um, sort of doing the disfavored thing and were under attack from, from people uh, on the different point of the political spectrum. But, but not in this sort of proactive kind of way we see them. And it's also you know, related to you know, many corporations have been uh, pursuing some environmental goals and other uh, social uh, policy goals mm -hmm. besides this as well. Now, before we get into talking too much about what corporations d should do, we should talk a little bit about like what exactly is a corporation and its, its legal structure so we make sure we understand like who's running a corporation and who ultimately uh, legally owns the corporation. Right, okay, pretty simple answers as far as the law is concerned anyway about who owns it. The shareholders own what's called the residual claim to the corporation's income. So after the corporation pays all of its creditors, 
uh, and its taxes than whatever's left belongs to the shareholders as a group. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there are only two things that can happen with the net income from a corporation. The board can decide to either pay out a share of it in dividends to the shareholders or to reinvest the, the net income in expanding the company. And that's like the critical decision the board makes is the dividend policy about how much is to be uh, sort of uh, given to the shareholders as income and how much will be retained and reinvested in some way. But that's, that's a decision for the board. Okay, so you, then you, you mentioned the board, and that, that would be a board of directors of, of the company, right? Right. They're elected by the shareholders. Mm -hmm. Normally, in a, a corporation, the board will nominate uh, candidates for any vacancy that occurs, so the board's kind of self-perpetuating in that mm -hmm. way. And the, the uh, shareholders vote for the board, but they typically don't know much about who the candidates are or what they stand for, any of the rest of it. It's kind of a pro forma thing, quite frankly, the idea of shareholder democracy and all of that. Um, <laughs> most shareholders, and when I say shareholder, unless I, unless I indicate otherwise, I mean individual shareholders. Mm -hmm. You know, you and me and people saving for their retirement and all of that, um, uh, not more sophisticated, wealthier individuals or uh, institutions such as insurance companies or pension funds or mutual funds. Those people all are going to have a good idea of who the, if there's a dispute about uh, the board of a corporation, they'll know what the, the inside story is about all that. You and I will not. We mm -hmm. will not know. And what's more, we are, we have a, it's rational for us not to really care that much uh, or exercise much of an effort to find out about the corporation's inner workings because we can't affect them. Right. If I own 100 shares of Walmart, I'm not going to make any difference in the grand scheme of things when it comes to electing a board or anything else. And, and so and, I don't, and I don't because, pay attention. And that's because uh, large corporations have like millions of shares. Yeah. And, and so yeah. it's uh, um, in public choice economics, we study uh, how elections work from, from a standpoint of using microeconomics uh, to, to think about you know, individual people's incentives. And we've identified that there are some weaknesses in, in voting as a way to try to make sure our governors or, or mm -hmm. uh, legislators uh, effectively serve our interests. And so some of that carries over, yeah, I, I imagine, absolutely. into a... Uh, uh, Right. There's a, there's a phrase actually in the history of American corporation law that captures the uh, the essence of the corporation is it involves the separation of ownership and control. In a partnership, the owners, the partners, also control the business. They manage the business usually mm -hmm. directly. I mean, you're you know you go into work every day and you have a very intimate knowledge of your own business with a handful of other partners. In a corporation, especially a large publicly traded one. Uh, if I own 100 shares of Walmart, I don't expect to ever have to help Walmart make a decision. I have no idea who the other shareholders are. We don't communicate. Right. And so I own it in the sense that I and all the other shareholders are entitled to what's left over after all the creditors are paid. Mm -hmm. But we do not control it, except through this very sort of minimal participation in electing the board. And you know, the subject of the public choice kind of concerns that you just mentioned. And then mentioned. we talk about, like, uh, usually I mentioned that the CEO of, of Coca-Cola, that's a chief executive officer. And if I understand, the board of directors then actually hires or fires yeah. the, the CEO who's going to uh, uh, run the company on a day-to-day -day basis. Right? right, right. Yeah. And given this whole process, in a sense, although we can say that the CEO is supposed to be working for the stockholders, uh, economists like to use the term principal agent framework here, that the, the stockholders are in charge, 
the, the CEO at some level is supposed to be doing what, uh, what they want them, what the, the shareholders want the, the CEO to do. The CEO is going to have some discretion, is going to have yep. some ability to do stuff that may or may not be in, in the stockholder's best interest, right? That's exactly right. And, and that gap between what your agent might want to do and what the principal would prefer them to do is, is kind of the thing that animated uh, a big debate back during the Depression among particularly law professors who taught about this. It's like, what should we do about this agency gap in the mm -hmm. corporation? And so you can look at the separation of ownership and control as a feature or a bug, mm -hmm. essentially. And in the 30s, because people were kind of down on capitalism generally, there was a lot of attention paid to the idea that, well, it's a bug, it's bad, that shareholders don't have more of a role in the corporation's uh, operations. But uh, later, people sort of <laughs> took a second look at that and decided, you know, th that's really not any way to run a railroad is to have some sort of big, you know, town meeting sort of approach right. to, to making decisions. It's just not possible to, to do it that way. And uh, uh, so, so the, 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 the legislation that Congress passed in the 1930s to regulate the securities markets and to set up the Securities and Exchange Commission was all based on that separation of ownership is bad view mm -hmm. of things. Like the government needs to come and fix this because shareholders are at the mercy essentially of these directors and officers. Now when we talk about the, the law for corporations, um, the, where is this law coming from? Is it from, from the federal government or, or from the states? No, it's from the states. And that's a unique thing about American corporation law. One, one uh, professor, uh, scholar in this area calls it the genius of American corporation law is we do it at the state level. Mm -hmm. And that, that developed historically, I mean, Congress certainly could, if it wanted to, usurp this field and take it over and say, oh, it's interstate commerce, we get, to, we get to regulate this, but so far they haven't. And if we have time, I'll come back. The, the House passed a bill last month that would take a big step in the direction of federalizing all this, but hopefully that won't pass the Senate, in my opinion, uh, and we'll, we'll stay at the state level. Uh, each state has its own corporation laws, and mm -hmm. that means that states can compete with one another to attract corporations to incorporate under their laws and pay taxes to them. You don't actually have to be physically present in Delaware, say. You can have a business completely in Alabama, in terms of the operations, and be a Delaware corporation if you just file the papers there and pay their taxes and fees. And, and, and a, a lot of businesses find it advantageous once they get to a certain size to reincorporate, uh, usually mm -hmm. in Delaware. So it's a state, it's state law, uh, and it's subject to competition between the states to try to make their laws more attractive to business people as they're setting up and trying to finance a, a business. So I mentioned that economists and, and others have been uh, debating about you know, the role of corporations and the discretion of, of uh, CEOs possibly for some time. Uh, 2020 marked the 50th anniversary of a very famous uh, article by uh, the economist Milton Friedman on, on exactly this uh, topic, and it was a very it generated lots of lots of interest and in, in, uh, impact ultimately on on uh, uh, policy. I think in mm -hmm. thinking, uh, and it was entitled the, the, "The Social Responsibility of uh, Corporations Is Increase Their Profit." A very yeah. Uh, controversial and thought-provoking uh, idea, but you know, what was uh, what, what was Professor Friedman trying to say there? It was he was responding to uh, the then-current calls for increased social responsibility on the part 
of corporations. So this seems to happen re recurrently in American history. Mm -hmm. We'll have these kind of debates like we seem to be having now. And his was a response to, I mean, it was an early uh, call for increased environmental uh, remediation by corporations and other kinds of socially desirable, uh, up to a point, mm -hmm. kinds of things that corporations could do. And Friedman's argument basically was, look, the, the, the sort of corporations have one job, and it's essentially the resource allocation function, which is about the most important function there is. Somebody mm -hmm. has got to make the decision about how we use scarce resources uh, in terms of uh, building new uh, factories or, or starting new lines of business. Uh, and, and businesses do that in our system for the most part. And we think that people with a profit motive in mind make better decisions than uh, public sector folks would if they were given the same responsibility. So this is like, this is as crucial a, a decision as we have to make, is do you really want through this corporate social responsibility thing for corporations to act more like government agencies or would it be a good idea for them to act like businesses and to continue to try to maximize their own profit, which they can only do if they respond to consumer wants and needs and demands effectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the way you do that. And so, you know, that's ultimately what we want is, is corporations to be effective managers and effective resource allocators and use the resources we have to, to best satisfy the public's uh, needs and wants. And, and within, you know, within a market economy, since consumers, all consumer purchases are voluntary, at some level, when a company makes a profit, they are providing something of value to people. And, and that's why they're able to sell their, their product or, or service, because consumers value it and are willing to, to pay for it. And, and that makes our lives better off. So I mean, when we talk about profit, you might think it's like you're just going to enrich capitalists, but it really is, is you're already in effect, in one sense, serving the social good Absolutely. by, by yeah. pursuing profit. And, yeah, you and I uh, have the great good fortune to be born in America, and we, we sort of have a, take a free ride on that every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't directly, I'm not responsible for more than just my tiny sliver of, of uh, the bounty of American life, and yet here I am. And so, yeah, it's something that people don't think about a lot, but maybe maybe they should stop and consider that every every now and then, you know. And, and also, to be clear, like, uh, Professor Friedman, his um, article was was you know it was explicitly saying that you know businesses have to follow the law and they oh, need yeah, to sure. follow the yeah. ethics. So when, when right. he was saying pursuit of profit, it, he wasn't saying like you know sacrifice you know, others or cheat others to, no. to order right. to, to to pursue your profit, yeah. but to do Absolutely. so you know pursue profit ethically and and and, and that that would be a, a good thing for uh, stockholders and uh, I mean I guess uh, economists and, and finance uh, <laughs> faculty professors ha have analyzed this but I mean they usually you know, mention that you know although you know, stockholders like everybody else care a lot about a lot more than money when it comes down to it uh, one thing that you've got millions of stockholders one thing that they might all agree on is that the comp company can make money and, and that that would allow them to all to, to pursue their other goals as well right mm -hmm. absolutely yeah I mean when the dividend check comes if you want to take part of it and give it to the United Way or your church mm -hmm. or whatever your whatever you choose uh, to give it to as opposed to having the board make your charitable contribution decisions for you um, 
that that's sort of an individual empowerment thing rather than having a collective decision made about and, uh, charity. You know. And if the, if the company makes more profits, then the, the stockholders ultimately would have more money to yeah. not only spend on themselves, but also give to their favorite charities or right. improve their communities. Now then, in, in 2019, a, a group known as the Business Roundtable uh, came up with a, a new statement of purpose for, for corporations in which they called for corporations to pursue uh, stakeholder uh, yeah. interests in contrast to, to stockholder interests. So, First off, tell us a little bit, like, what's this, dis because those words sound pretty similar, but they, they, they have different meanings. Yeah. So what's the difference between a stakeholder versus a stockholder? Yeah, it's interesting that they are so close. It's almost like it's a rhetorical strategy to confuse people and, or to minimize the difference. And, mm -hmm. and those are two very different uh, uh, foci for the corporation they have. The thing about stockholder welfare is, as hard as it is, to maximize profit, uh, at least we can all agree on a scorecard for that. And mm -hmm. accounting systems help us figure out the answer to the question of are we, do, are we performing as well as we right. can and all that. I honestly have no idea how a business leader would try to maximize the well-being of stockholders, employees, customers, people that live in cities where you have operations. Um, uh, you know, uh, there, there are just too many groups. And there are, first of all, there are contracts with all the non-shareholder groups already mm -hmm. uh, that address the right. nature of that relationship. And secondarily, if you, if, you know, yes, okay, uh, everything being equal, it would be nice if you could give all your employees a raise. I'm sure they'd appreciate it and they would prefer that, right? Um, that, that takes money away from shareholders. Mm -hmm if you do that. If you pay more than the market rate for labor, uh, unless you have some plan about why that will get you the best workers and you'll, through that uh, strategy, maximize your profits. That was Henry Ford's idea, mm -hmm. actually. He paid twice the going rate in Detroit for labor and he had the, his pick of the best craftsmen in, in the available in that market at the time. So, but he, you know, probably what he was trying to do was increase the bottom line, although he'd never admit yeah. that. So, so the, the stakeholder business is an attempt to turn business decision making into something that looks more like politics. Mm -hmm. And it's just poisonous. I mean, that's just a really bad idea to say, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of, we're gonna make everybody as happy as we possibly can. And it's like, well, there are these direct uh, uh, conflicts of interest involved in that, and I don't know how you trade them off. There's no, there's no system for accounting for that that's anywhere near the the accuracy of the uh, the accounting systems that are used for profit maximization. And, and as as we mentioned already, I mean, the, one of the groups of stakeholders that sometimes laid out are customers. But I mean, in, in a, a market economy, businesses already have to compete for customers' business, and so at some level, yeah. no business can stay in business if they're not delivering something of value to customers, so right. they won't buy their their product. So. You know, as an economist looking at that, it's certainly the, the part of the customers as a stakeholder that has to be represented. Well, if, if the business isn't doing that already, they're going to be out of business, and, yeah. and the CEO is probably going to lose their job. And, and, and so, I mean, there's already going to be some taken. And, and like, and you mentioned employees as another group that are, are stakeholders. I mean, they are already dealing with them on, in terms of contracts. They have to pay them a, a wage that makes them willing to work and so forth. So, so. Uh, 
as you said, that there are, are provisions in place for taking care of some of these other stakeholders mm -hmm. um, that, that we don't need to do it more directly. And uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about like, you know, maybe want to expand on this. Some of it, as you bring more and more people in to try to make a decision, it becomes very difficult to make a decision, right? Yeah, I mean, the, that's actually the, the corporate form arose uh, from the need to, to get uh, more investors together for bigger and bigger capital projects and as America grew. Uh, and the, the big sort of breakthrough moment came when railroad construction reached a certain point. And th those businesses, American railroads, were the largest corporations in, in the history of the world at the time that they were created and financed. Mm -hmm. And so you had to have a very large number of investors, each putting in a relatively small amount compared to the whole, might have been significant for each individual, but I'm gonna take some of my savings and invest it in this railroad. And um, I, have, I have no uh, uh, training in running a railroad. I have no mm -hmm. expertise to offer. I live in Alabama. This railroad is, if it's New York Central, it's very far away. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not gonna go attend a meeting of the investors. If we tried to all be partners, you'd have to have partnership meetings or try to and have people travel long distances and you know, people aren't gonna do that. So it's a, it's a question of the scale of the enterprise that you're financing. And if you need a lot of investors, relatively small investors, uh, to participate, you can't use the partnership form because the, you couldn't find a, a right. building big enough to rent or you'd have to have it in a stadium or something to have a partnership meeting. So it's, the, it's that kind of um, very practical uh, limitation on the partnership form. And I mean, also, I mean, in some of markets can also, if, if there are investors who feel that, you know, you know, maybe the environmental laws aren't as strict as they need to be, you know, the, the company could still be following the law, but if the mm -hmm. law isn't strict enough, they could be harming the environment, or at least in one, one way that they see that they're harming the environment. If an investor wants to be environmentally conscious, they can, uh, they can choose not to invest in a company that might not be doing mm -hmm. as much as they want to. And then, you know, at one level, there's no, no problem with uh, people expressing their opinions. Or, I mean, this is oh, similarly, no, right. similarly with, with consumers. Um, you know, I remember back some years ago now, they were concerned about um, how tuna were, were being caught and, and if, mm -hmm. if they were using the wrong kind of nets. And so, you know, right. you, you could, you know, pay extra to get uh, tuna that would be harvested without the nets that mm -hmm. would hurt the dolphins. And so, I mean, you know, um, if you want to go beyond what the law requires, you know, either as customers or workers or, or investors, you are free to oh, express sure, yeah. your, uh, your your preferences that way by choosing who you're going to do business with, who you're going to work for, who you're going to buy, you know, what, what mm -hmm. products you're going to buy. Right, right. And, and so there is a, a already a, again a way to, to incorporate a lot of social and environmental concerns in your into own, markets. In, yeah, in your own investing strategy and yeah. everything. I mean, there's there are mutual funds that are set up for ethical investors. If you want to mm -hmm. put your money in an ethical, ethically guided fund and all that sort of thing, that's available. Um, in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, I think it's up to about two thirds of the states now have a statute that allows for what's called a public benefit corporation, mm -hmm. which is a, you know, it's a corporation that announces, hey, we're gonna be sort of maximally socially responsive here. Mm -hmm. And and they, they uh, forsake profit maximization as their single goal. So if you want to invest in companies that act that way, look mm -hmm. for public benefit corporations, they're out there. So I don't know if that, I'm not advising anybody to do that. I don't, I personally don't think that would be a great 
um, investment strategy, but everybody now, makes their own decision a here. A part so. of what you did, you know, so some of this you know, is, is environmental or socially or responsible activities are already being uh, in, incorporated in some ways. Um, but you hinted at that some people want to sort of make this mandatory for, for businesses yeah. and uh, might be able to do it through the SEC or, or you mentioned a, a bill that was introduced in Congress. So tell us a little bit about this uh, push. If these are good things, why don't we make corporations do that? Right, so, so the SEC has rulemaking authority. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, and it's used it many times in its history. It's uh, now not almost 90 years old. So it's, it's been considering a rule about disclosures, mandatory disclosures, which is the way the SEC mostly operates, about uh, environmental issues with the corporation's operations, mm -hmm. and in particular global warming or climate change kind of concerns. Now, um, so far, we're at a stage where they're talking about uh, disclosure, mm -hmm. all right? And, and so it sounds like the other things the SEC requires. But it's different to the extent that um, up until fairly recently, the SEC took as its, its job was investor protection. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of like the whole focus of it is we want to like force corporations to disclose enough information so that really individual investors can have a, a chance at evaluating the worthiness of a corporation stock as right. an investment possibility. This doesn't sound like that. Mm -hmm. It sounds more like we want to force corporations, and in particular corporations in the oil and gas and coal industries, to, to, to come forward with a lot of information, and we'll tell you what, what it, specify what that will be later about that and its effect on the environment. And I assume this is all kind of preparatory to a push later in some regulatory vein about you know, now the corporation shouldn't do this and they should do that. Mm -hmm. At this stage, it's just disclosure, and so it's harder to um, kind of sound an alarm bell about, I suppose, but it is a, it's a really significantly different approach to rulemaking than the, than the agency has had for most of its history. And so that's, that's troubling. As, especially as you, you mentioned, like going beyond pr uh, investor protection yeah. to, to pursue other uh, issues here. Um, you know, some people who say that you know, the, we should mandate more behavior like this uh, from corporations would say that uh, corporations are, are sort of given this like privilege to operate by the, the government, and by that, so they're referring to this corporate the, these laws that you mentioned under which corporations uh, incorporate. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in, in exchange for being allowed to operate in this way, should uh, corporations face additional burdens or demands? Okay, so that, that's a really good point to, to bring up. The, the simple answer is that corporation law, as long as we leave it with the states, is gonna be an enabling statute rather than a regulatory statute. Mm -hmm. So this is there for investors to use to create businesses. It, it doesn't really require anything much beyond, and the requirements are procedural for the most part, so they're not substantive. There's not like reduce your pollution or increase your wages or whatever whatever people might have in mind here for, for additional regulations of business. Um, it's not a concession really, except to the extent that uh, investors have limited personal liability mm -hmm. um, for uh, tort claims, and that's not all that significant a uh, concession. So if you want to try to make corporation law regulatory, 
that'd be the last field of law that's <laughs> uh, that's just trying to be helpful and not regulatory. So, mm -hmm. that, and we, we do have a number of other regulatory statutes. It's not like you need to take this one right. and make it make it demanding on businesses. It seems to me. I mean, I guess another way that I look at it, I'm not a lawyer, but I look at it is, is like, you know, if people have a right to f start a business, then it's not a privilege that the government's uh, giving yeah, them. Yeah. You, 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 you know, I think we think people should have a right to, to start their own business, especially if they're just, you know, following the general laws and they're not trying to break other laws. Sure. Uh, so we just have a few moments left. So any anything you want to say in terms of, of wrapping up, or like what we should be thinking about going forward here? Well, keep keep an eye on the SEC. Um, if you go to their website and just Google the letters ESG for Environmental, Social, and Governance Reforms, they've collected all of their current material on this one website. It's very very handy. And there's a, a writer at the Competitive Enterprise Institute named Richard Morrison who follows this very closely and writes about it a lot. And so that's CEI.org, and he's a, he's a good source for this. Well, thanks very much for coming on to talk about this, uh, these important issues with us, and, and thanks for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 